episode 399 with Mr. David Stumpf, author of Titan 2, A History of a Cold War Missile Program. And although much of it was over my head, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a lot of books I start and topics I like, and I don't know how they're going to go. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was terrifying. It was, um, but before I go off onto a rant, how about you introduce yourself, sir? I'm a retired research biochemist uh, at the University of Arizona and had a hobby of, developed a hobby of writing histories on military um, nuclear weapons systems. Um, just because I didn't like the way most of them were being written at the time, I figured I could at least try and do it the best. My first book was about Regulus, the Navy's first atomic uh, weapon, uh, nuclear weapon tip. Uh, cruise missile. Oh yeah, and it was dismissed by the authorities at the time and the historians in the '60s and '70s as being a dumb weapon because Polaris was coming. But obviously, if Polaris hadn't worked, they'd have to have something in backup. So that was my first book, and that got me intrigued on writing more histories. And my wife said, "You can't write another one unless you get an advance." And I never got an advance, but I did get a grant to write the Titan Two book. And then after that. I just wanted to write one more book, and that was on reentry vehicle development. But the Air Force encouraged me not to write that book. But instead, if I wrote the Titan II book, the um, historian I talked to said, let's have you write the book on Miniman. And I said, is there any money in it for me? And he goes, no. And I said, well, I'll do it anyway. So <laughs> five years later and a lot of money later on my own, I wrote a book that I just learned today has sold over a thousand copies in a little over six weeks. So, so I'm not making I'm not going to make a fortune back on it, but it's an, it's heartwarming to see it's being well received. It's well, I'll, I'll have to grab that as well, and I, I think I'm going to have to have you on a couple on here a couple times now, so we can cover all your <laughs> books. I didn't know you had written other ones. I I was just searching for a missile, but I had read Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which was very yeah. good about the Damascus incident, but it was also it wasn't entirely just about the missiles. You know, there's a lot of drama involved. Right. Well, I, the interesting thing about Eric, he got a hold of, I was in a three-year retreat, isolated retreat when he wrote his book. Mm-hmm. And he was stumbling around trying to get a hold of copies of the Damascus documents, which I had provided the uh, Titan Missile Museum with. So basically due to my uh, energy and making sure history is, is well recorded he was able to write it one thing the only trouble I had with Eric's book was he tended to take oh how can I put it um, everything in my books is, is cited so if you don't believe the, the particular document statement in the book you can find the actual document it came from and that's one thing about Schlosser's book nothing in my book is from someone who says anonymous yeah. If you don't have the guts to to put your name you can't next to what you're saying, then I'm sorry, I'm not interested, no matter how sexy it may be. That's awesome. So, but that's what makes Titan 2 amazing. Well, the, the Titan 2 book has a lot of personal stories, personal, what I call um, human interest stories. Mm-hmm. The Miniman book, Miniman was a much different system, and the troops were not that involved with the missile itself, except the maintenance guys. But on a day-to-day basis, the launch control staff never saw the missile, whereas with Titan II, they were living 150 feet away from it, so. Um, I'm in talks, I've been in talks with a guy for about six weeks who's currently stationed in Montana in an ICBM silo, active active uh-huh. duty. 
I have to, apparently they're looking at my podcast and I, I think they're doing a background check on me. He said something about, he said, by May, I'll know whether or not he can come on. But uh, they want to make sure yeah. I'm not a foreign agent or something. Well, sure. Well, the important <laughs> thing is what the guy has to say. Yeah. I mean, he has he has to be careful too because yes. it's still an active weapon Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good luck. I hope I hope you'll come on board. Me, me, me too. He, uh, yeah. Um, with Titan two, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it's one of those things where you kind of hear about these programs here and there, you know, like um, World War II, you you always hear about just these absurd numbers, you know, 50,000 tanks or 80,000, you know, P-50. And they just, the mind doesn't comprehend it. You know, like you understand a dollar, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, but once you get into a trillion, it's all gobbledygook. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What I liked about Titan II was, you see one of these images, like everyone's seen the old pictures, right? You know, the, the silo opens and the fire and up oh, there goes the missile. It's nuclear war. You, you see it in Terminator. You see it in all the, okay, yeah, sure. But when you look at it, and at least this is how my mind works, it's like, well, how big is that missile? And you see it coming out and it's like, well, there's a whole thing underground. And you start looking up and you're like, there are men who operate that. There are men on ships. Well, this thing has – and then what? There's – there's wait, there's more than one? There's two? There's five? There's ten? Yeah. I really wanted to just learn a – I just wanted to learn more about it. And I was so happy to find your book because you truly – I mean from beginning to end – I my parents probably think I'm crazy. I finished the book up and it was probably like two in the morning. I had my – uh I had uh, yeah, I was on Audible, and I just started clapping at the end, <laughs> two in the morning. And I was just like, "Well done, well done." Oh, but it's, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because there was there's sort of a sentimental end to it. You know, it's these men and women that are you know shutting down this thing they worked on. They're pushing the soil in, and it's you know moving the silo top over. But all throughout it, there's just this imagery of like. The first way it will kill you is if it launches and its reentry vehicle hits your city. <laughs> Right, but then there's a million it, where it's it's kind of like what um oh, who was it, it said about the uh, that plut- the demon core it's tickling the tail of the dragon, right, right, yeah, it's this huge missile. I mean, I was I was uh, familiar with the Damascus incident, but just for example, the other one for everyone listening is talking about I believe uh, cleaning the outside of it with rags soaked in Freon one thirteen. Yeah, yeah, right, right. They throw them, and they threw them over, just kind of clean them all up at the end. Like if if you're cleaning your bathroom, you don't know, throw the Clorox wipe. And a guy went down there and died just because the ventilation system wasn't strong enough to remove the Freon. But the, the key to that is, is for me, and I talked to the maintenance, the chief of maintenance, uh, civilian chief of maintenance at uh, Little Rock because of the accident. And he said, David, the system was never designed to remove <laughs> yeah. air. That those kind of contaminants, those contaminants should never have been there. So, uh, but most all of the uh, the accidents in Titan were human. Were were human error, and and these people would argue, well, you should be able to design about that. Well, you can only go so far. It's it's like if someone tries to put uh, diesel fuel in their in their gas powered car, whose fault is it? Yeah. Not the guys who, who made the diesel nozzle. It's the guy who, who um, mixed up the nozzles. So um, the, the fire that they had in Sarsi in 1965, again, they had far too many people. Each of the um, each of the work orders was valid, but someone didn't keep track of the number of people. 
So the fact that that flash fire wasn't the missile design fault, wasn't the design, the the fault of the guys doing the welding. It was the fault of having that many people mm-hmm. in one place at one time with limited ability to get out. Mm-hmm. Now it's very sad. I'm not trying to justify Absolutely. it, but it's um, one of the things that bothered me. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because of all these comments about the missile being a dangerous missile. Um, the accident rate, the hazard rate for Titan II was no different than a, a similar industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Now, does that make it okay to have accidents? No, but it doesn't mean the idiots, the people that designed it were idiots. No, no, not at all. It's um... And it was a safe enough missile to launch Gemini astronauts off. Yes, yes. So, so <laughs> yeah. Atlas had more problems, and no one, no one complains about Atlas. Yeah. But Atlas had far more problems than Titan II. The, the fact that Titan II stayed was it that it stayed on on it was online for twenty four years or was it twenty four years past its its um no it was it was online for twenty four it was meant to be I believe ten to seventeen years the Miniman program each of the Miniman sequence one one a one a and b and uh, two and three were each supposed to be in service for ten years and um, look at Miniman three it's been in service since the seventies. So nearly fifty, almost sixty years. Yeah. Now it's had it's had things replaced and refurbished. The fuel's been washed out and refurbished, but the basic system is still there. And yeah, and I think that points to. I mean, again, it's it's kind of how towards the end of the book when it was you know a lot of people, uh, a lot of civilians or just you know bureaucrats, they point to the Titan II as an aging, leaking dinosaur. And it's no, it's the fact that it stayed on for 24 years and there was only, what, 50 of them, 75 of them? 50, 54 50 in the whole. Shows just how reliable they were and just how important they were. Out of a 3,000 missile arsenal, the fact that you kept these just a, a handful on, it shows that they held something that nothing else could. Right. And when people are complaining, it's been my uh, my observation in life when people complain about something leaking and stuff like that, they're trying to justify. They're not, they're not, it's not something that that's as much a problem as it is. They're looking for something to justify. It's like consumer reports saying there's too much, not enough chrome on a, on a, the bumper of a, of a car. Well, who cares? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, frankly. Yeah. So t- was Titan too dangerous? You bet. Was it a a poor design? No. Was it what we needed when we needed it because it carried the single largest nuclear weapon that was deployed on a missile? Yes. Could that weapon make a big hole in the ground? You bet. Was it accurate? Accurate enough for something that big? Yeah. So it filled all the needs. And the fact, in my opinion, the fact that they could re- refurbish 14 of the missiles, airframes, and use them to launch satellites reliably with no accidents and no no loss of, um, no detonation of the, you know, aborting of the mission, that speaks pretty highly of the design. It absolutely does. It's, um, yeah, and there's something about that nine megaton warhead that, I don't, to me, to me, the Titan II, I, I, I wish it was named LeMay, because it just seems like if, if Curtis LeMay was a missile, he would be the Titan II, right? He wouldn't be a sidewinder. He would be a nine megaton yeah. warhead, right? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so kind of on, on a fun note in your book, you actually answered a question. So I have I always had this, I'm 30 years old now, but apparently I have the mind of a 10-year-old. I'd always had this wonder, you know, what would happen 
if like the uh, the Pope and the President got in a fight? Would their guards protect each other, and would they start fighting each other? And that was a stupid question that I remember asking, like fifth grade. My teacher was like, "Shut up." Well, twenty years <laughs> later, listening to your book, the Vice President uh, Humphreys, I believe, under LBJ, right. was down visiting yeah. one of the silos, and he brought his Secret Service men. And the Secret Service men said, "You know, no one can be within the vicinity of the Vice President with a pistol." And the missileers were saying, "No one can be down in our missile silo with a pistol." And there was this yeah. sort of standoff, and eventually there was some weird compromise where the missileers could keep it, but the Secret Service guys could keep it, but they had to take the bullets out or something. Yeah, something, something bizarre like that. I just thought that was yeah. a beautiful microcosm of the of the pissing contest that is often different divisions of the government. Yeah, I, I agree, and the, the pissing con- pissing contests that are taking place now in Congress. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's just it's it's like someone's trying to think of a, of a reason to cause problems rather than to cause a solution. I I'm Buddhist by uh, philosophy and actually an ordained monk. Oh, really? And and um, that's hence the maroon color. Um, and I always try and find. Oh, I, how can I put it? Um, I try and find a solution rather than being part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And then that's what really bothered me about all the discussion about you need to get rid of the Titan twos. Was it time to get rid of them with a thousand Minutemen? I, I don't, I don't doubt that the accuracy of the Minutemen was such that you didn't need the kind of bang that would come with a uh, Titan two. But during the time, in hindsight, that's the other thing about my books. I write human interest book. I try to, and I write from historical. Well, what I try not to do is historical hindsight. I try and write from the there and then. And that's what drives me. There are two things that drive me nuts about military histories. First, the history that's written without any citations. And I've come across several of them. And they're they're beautifully illustrated picture books. But they're of no value historically because there are no dates on the pictures and there's no source for the pictures. The other thing that bothers me is, let me see, I'm losing my train of thought. Citations. Oh, yeah, the um, writing from a here and then, here and now instead of a there and then. It's really easy to go back and say Titan II should never have been built. Yeah. Those those propulsion, those propellants were terrible and, and all that. Yeah, now that you know they were never used, why did we build any of the any of the weapons we've, yeah. we've built? Yeah. So, it's yeah. It's it's. I've got to think the Soviet Union and China. Had a respect for Titan II and for Minuteman. Absolutely. Uh, even if there are only 400 Minutemen left, that's still 400 bombs. I don't want landed on my country. It's I, I've often said it. You know, as horrible as nuclear weapons are, there has never been a more peace-inducing invention in the world. I I, I would agree. The unfortunate problem is, it's if if someone makes a mistake, it's game over. It's a pretty big bang. <laughs> it, but, it is. Well, What's what's interesting in all the scenarios when one of the things when I wrote about Miniman and Titan Two was this idea of how close was close enough, and I, I actually have a, a lecture I give on that. The um, the think tank people would say, oh, the single shot probability kill probability is this and that, and and they never make it over the pole because we never looked at the gravity issues going over the pole. And, you know, that's all well and good, but at one point you just have to stop and you have to build the system and do the best you can. Mm-hmm. And and that's 
that's what Titan Two and Minuteman represented. Yeah, it's again, it's you can look back and yeah, why did we do that? And it's uh, you know, you could look at the X fifteen pilots that were killed, or you could look back at you know early you know Cold War submarines that were lost, and it's like. Sure, you know, we can go back and look at this. I mean, who knew that the stairwells were going to be severed in the World Trade Center from an airliner? You know, like we can right. we can always look right. back. You have to go back and look at where they were at the time. World War II had just ended. 80, mil, 80 million people dead. It ended with two atomic bombs, fission bombs. We get two-thirds of the paperclip scientists. The Soviet Union gets one-third. We're at each other's throats. It's, just, it's a bipolar world. And we're building thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. You got to get a missile system and you got to get it now. You can't have a seven hour bomber. You got to have something that can go in 30 minutes because they are. And they did it with Sputnik. So we had to get something out and we had to get out a lot of them. It's not perfect. But for what it was, it was incredible. Well, the the hindsight is could, could the Soviets have ever gotten their act together to invade the United States? Doubtful. Doubtful. But again... You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I, I just, I hate reading history, any kind of history book that's hindsight. Yeah. It's just, um, it's an easy book to write. And, mm-hmm. and the books without references are e- very easy to write, believe me. About 30% of the of the word count in the uh, Titan, in the Miniman book is the references. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's, well, here's a story about Titan too that, actually brought to forefront the reason I wrote the book. Okay. I went out and uh, had, met a couple of people that were now vice presidents in, the, in Martin Marietta or Lockheed Martin. And I went out to the facilities in Denver and Littleton and was going through, I was hosted by a guy who used to be in charge of the print shop. So when I got there and I found all these documents I wanted to copy, I said, I'll write you a check. And he said, we have no way of processing a check. We'll just go ahead and print it for you. So I got thousands of pages printed. But the funny thing was when I went out there, there's a room about, oh, let's say 400 square feet, 20 by 20. And it was full of Titan II documentation from the years years ago. And I was able to cherry pick. I, I behaved myself. I didn't say just copy the whole thing. And I got all this material and I went back about four months later and the room was gone. It was converted into offices. And all of the documents were then sh- shipped up to the hill for storage in an unair conditioned blockhouse, oh, no. which basically meant it was gonna they were oh, gonna dissolve. Yeah. And the reason for that was Lockheed had been told the government said, we're not paying for storing this anymore. If you want to store it, it's up to you, but we're not paying you to store it anymore. So Lockheed said, okay, we'll get rid of it. I'm not saying they shouldn't have gotten rid of it, but just the serendipity of my being there at the right time in the right place with the right people to get the information I needed was, uh, I think it's continued with the, with the Minuteman book. I've had the same kind of luck. I, I, I don't believe it's luck. I think you, as, uh, Buddhism, you know, I think it's what was it? Did you ever read any Alan Watts or Ram Dass or? I've I've read some of Alan Watts. Yeah, Alan Watts. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm basically running both books, especially the Minuteman. I, I said, okay, if someone has is, has information I have, rather than protecting, there's only one case where I protected some information I had uh, before the book was released, and that was, um, that took me a long time to get um, declassified. But everything else, if you called or emailed me and said, you know, I'm interested in this little piece of information about Miniman, 
I'd shoot you an email and say, here it is, because that's how I establish the karma and my way mm-hmm. of thinking for having respond people respond quickly to me. Mm-hmm. So for instance, this podcast, yeah, I could have sat for, for days thinking about it and, and weeks and yeah, I'll get back to them. But no, I got back to you right away because that's how it works. If I want that kind of response when I have a need, I've got to respond to others, well, positive or negative. That's so. that's why I responded immediately. You got back to me and you're like, we could do this Wednesday. Normally, I like to push it off. Like if I if I know an author's going to come on, I'll push it off a week or so so I can cover up on the touch up on it again. But you were like this Wednesday and I was like, the gentleman said this Wednesday. I was like, we're doing it Wednesday. Put everything else and <laughs> went over Titan 2 again and I got ready. I was like, let's do this thing. I But I've, I've very much, I've found it with this podcast. Um, I was talking to someone before this, but I've talked about the sort of profound uh uh, spiritual insights just from this podcast learning to um, you know treat others well and the way it comes back in these untold ways that you never imagine happen happening absolutely and and one of the one of the ways was um about a hundred episodes ago was I reached out to mr. Charlie Duke Apollo 16 yeah the 10th right, man to walk right. on the moon and he emailed me back and he was like, normally I don't do like podcast. He's 89. He's like, normally I don't do interviews, but he's like, something told me to say yes, Tommy. And I was like, okay, wow. we actually had, wow. a, we actually had a beautiful talk at the end. It got into a, you know, finding faith or God or, you know, assurance in the after it, it transformed into this beautiful conversation. And, you know, I, I, we email, we kind of email back and forth, but it's just like, now I've got a pen pal who walked on the moon. And there are there you go. there are some beautiful there you insights, go. and yeah. and but in the same way that the universe has a sense of humor, I love that you're an ordained monk and you also write books about thermonuclear war or mid uh, delivery <laughs> systems. There's that beautiful there's that beautiful uh, juxtaposition, but it's well, I, I, the reason I wrote these books was not because they blow up people. The, the, the reason I wrote it was incredible. I. I I think people need to know about the technology. I think people need to understand there are a lot of, of very, um, and patriotics have been abused these days, but very sincere men and women that, that really feel they have a, a desire and a need to protect our country. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why I write these books. It's, uh, the, the technology fascinates me. I still, well, uh, the technology fascinates me in the way that it fascinates me how a mouse works on a computer. Mm-hmm. You can click on a folder and sure. it opens. I, I gave up a long time ago. I'm old enough to remember when personal computers just came out and I thought I'd get into programming and I took about two minutes to realize <laughs> that's that. I, I do a lot of complex things as a scientist, but programming's not one of them. Hey, I, I got into medical school in 2013 I'm smart enough to get into medical school. I've tried. I played with programming for about 30 seconds, and I realized it was over my head. And I was yeah. like, "No, sir, this is not for me." But you did. You said that towards the end of the, your book. Was you're right? Uh, you know, perhaps not patriotic, because that's that that term's thrown around a lot. But it was men and women who sincerely they they took these shifts in literal bunkers in the middle of nowhere, day in and day out, years on end. And they, you know, they didn't break the chain. And it was, you, they were keeping peace. And they were. Well, that's, that's what I think. They were preventing, they were, it's not, uh, you could say it's keeping peace. I, I think preventing war. Sure. I mean, semantics, but. Sure. 
but the fact that they knew that events now the, the key question tommy is is whether we would have ever launched that's and 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 you know you just don't know it depends on the president they all thought reagan was a uh, trigger happy this is something that is bandied about in the press and no one really addresses but when the president decides to launch he doesn't turn a key no. he doesn't initiate a launch he initiates an order mm-hmm. the, the guys that actually send the order out are in the pentagon and from what i understand with the recent past president issues they said with any president we have a, a certain amount of evaluation if, if out of the blue he says let's nuke england obviously we're not going to nuke england mm-hmm. uh, if oh, we're yeah. going to he wants to nuke any particular country there, we have to be in a war footing. It can't be a surprise attack because we don't. That's not who we are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, which is good. In Garrett Graff's Raven Rock, um, as well as I read a book just the other week called The Button. I think it's a fairly recent book by a former Secretary of Defense. But um, they go into that topic, and I, I know uh, Garrett Graff covers it about how Nixon was drinking heavily in his final days and was very depressed and was acting a little, a little angry and. Um, when he got on the on Air Force One to be flown home, Kissinger actually told the guy or gave an order down the chain to the man who had the nuclear football and said, don't go on the plane with him. And so Nixon didn't know, but he didn't have the nuclear football in his final hours. And in the final days, so preceding that moment, um, the then Secretary of Defense had ordered... Uh, I think whoever was in maybe Strategic Air Command, maybe he was in NORAD, whoever, said if you get an order from Nixon to do an all-out uh, launch, you know, a massive just global strike, said run it by me first or run it by Kissinger first because they weren't yeah. entirely sure that he was about his wits. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's frightening that that would be, and it seems to be in the, in the hands of one person, man or woman, but it's really a chain of command. Yeah. And, and hopefully it would work. I do know guys that were in the hall uh, when the, uh, the Arab-Israeli war, the first one, the 67 war mm-hmm. happened, and things got a little dicey when the Soviets looked like they were going to um, uh, take put troops in the area. And he said, much to his pleasant surprise, uh, well, not so much pleasant surprise, but the, the crew worked just as it was supposed to. It wasn't a matter of gee should we really do this should we really open the safe should we do this and that and they did it because that's what they were trained to do Mm -hmm. yeah so if are you gonna would would people have turned the keys that's the beauty in in minuteman and in titan two and in titan one um the double key turn was far enough away that you couldn't one person couldn't turn both keys if you ever want to see an interesting film um twilight's last gleaming okay it's um, Bird Lancaster takes over a missile, a Titan One missile complex, and they rig a, a key turn that so they can launch the missiles if they want. And that's fictitious because that could not have been done. Yeah. But in Titan Two, they had to be turned within two seconds. Uh, I can't remember the timing. It held for a certain number of seconds, so you couldn't turn one and, and race over and turn yeah. the other. You had to hold them together. Yeah. And same with Minuteman. So. Yeah. The accidental launch. Not gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that we're here and talking, I think, shows that it's not gonna happen. Well, that's you know, that's an interesting point, Tommy, because I remember a lot of people talking about what would happen if if we launched. Wouldn't it be terrible? You think? 
Of course it would be. My wife and I used to joke that when we moved here, and after seeing the uh, the day after, I don't know if oh, you've seen yeah. that film. Yes, I have. Where those those kids at a, at a school look out and the, the missiles from McConnell are taking off. Um, I figured I worked at the University of Arizona, and if I saw one of the Titan twos taking off, my wife, who also worked there, we were going to run home, race home, get in our swimsuits, get on the roof, and get an atomic tan. <laughs> Why would I want to survive an atomic, you know, a nuclear war? That's. For a second, I thought you were going to say and go hide in the basement, and I was going to. I'm glad you said what you said because I've often thought if I just for whatever if I was ever in D.C. or Manhattan and we got a we got a emergency broadcast message, no, what I would do is I would take off my, I would take off anything that would cover like the initial thermal blast. I'd probably get naked, and I'd walk out and I would try to go right to where I think the hypocenter is because that is not yeah. a world I want to live in in my worst nightmares. Well, you think about the pandemic and the co- the hassles it's caused everybody. That's nothing compared nothing. to nuclear war. Nothing. But, you know, the, the funny thing about nuclear well, not the funny thing, <laughs> but the thing about nuclear war is thinking about it. I grew up when, when they were putting in um, uh, air raid shelters mm-hmm. in a small town, Davis, California, which is under the flight path to Travis. And we used to see SAC B-52s coming in all, all the time probably armed with uh, with live weapons because they're on the chrome dome yeah. um, alert, airborne alert. But I just always, my dad said, I don't know if you ever heard of Gaines burgers. They're a, they're kind of, they look kind of like hamburger. They were a dog food. And he actually had us each eat a bite of Gaines burger because he said if, if push came to shove, that's what we'd be eating. Oh. And I thought to myself, we don't have an air raid shelter. We're not going to be eating squat. We're yeah. going to be vaporized. We're going to so. be in the upper. We're going to be in the stratosphere in about forty-five seconds. It's a yeah, cloud so. of ionized gas. Yeah, you don't. You don't know. You don't want to live in that world. No one's coming to save you. It, the idea that anyone's come. No, the people that are going to survive are in bunkers, three thousand feet under a mountain. You're not living. Yeah, it's. And I think that is. Pro- I think that's one of the best. Anyway, going way off on a tangent. Um. I forgot what I was going to say. It, it slipped my mind. Um, living oh, underground. Living underground, nuclear weapons. Obviously, we're talking about the Titan. Um, but it, I, I thought it was interesting how they would know immediately when, when they were doing a test of the system. Or sorry, no, that's not what I was going to say. I thought it was insane the amount of research you did on the acoustic, uh, I guess the acoustic effects of the takeoff, you know, the dampers, oh. <laughs> the, the, what? No, you're right. Oh. I, I, this is back, this is pre or early internet. Oh, okay. And I, had, I get a hold of a guy in England who's still alive. And and I contacted him recently just for grins. And because there's a section in the book about, a little brief section in the book about building the uh, launch facilities. And I get a hold of this guy and he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm Barry. What can I do for you? And I said, well, I'd be curious if you had any information about the acoustic uh, attenuation. He goes, well, yeah, let me send you some slides. So he sent me photographs and actual slides from his collection of the experiments they did, which actually showed you didn't need the attenuating material after all. Yeah. But the Air Force put it in anyway. Yeah. It's, One of the reasons the book was successful was I was a historian at the Titan Missile Museum before I started writing the book. So I knew all about the missile. In fact, that was kind of how I auditioned with the engineers 
I'd, I'd come to meet them and we'd start talking and they'd, they'd throw out facts. something that wasn't wasn't quite true. And I'd look at them and say, you know, with all due respect from what I've read with the tech manuals, this is what happened. And they look at me and go, this guy knows what he's talking about. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like uh, just uh, a random thing that I don't know, you know, you you think of the entire system, a, you know, a massive liquid fueled rocket throwing a nine megaton warhead into orbit. You'd think that's what would stick into my mind. The one thing that's stuck into my mind more than anything is talking about like one of the forms of sound attenu- attenuation was they put insulation in like chicken wire cubes. Well, it's not in screen tube cubes. Yeah. They weren't chicken wire, oh, okay. but yeah, they they had a fine mesh screen that would attenuate the sound. And inside that, once the sound waves got into the, the cube, they dissipate into fiberglass um, fiberglass material. I don't know why that's stuck in my Of everything else, that's what's stuck in my mind about this book, because I just remember that. And I remember as soon as I heard it, I was like, I'm never going to forget that. Another well, thing. Well, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, those, those, cube, those cubes often detach from the wall at launch. And <laughs> yeah. if you look at the sequence, the launch sequence out of Vandenberg, you can see these little cubes, these cubes of dark material flying in and out in the, in the stream of the huh. exhaust. And uh, sometimes they get jammed up in the deflectors. Of course, those were the refurbishable silos in uh, at, at uh, Vandenberg. These were one launch items, so they didn't have to worry about refurbishing them. There was one kind of cool story about that, though. I saw I um, had a picture from Vandenberg of a cocooned... Um, uh, thrust mount spring and it had the fiberglass coating on it and if you never if you'd never been to the museum you'd never know what it looked like so i got one of my first digital cameras which had a 790 megapixel um memory a camera ccd size which is you know trivial now yeah, yeah. but it's pretty cool and i took it and i just stood in the silo and used the camera clicking away until i got exactly the same view as a picture taken of Vandenberg, which I can never have done with a, with film, yeah. a normal film camera. But that was, I, I really enjoyed doing that because that's, that's the detail I go to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's no, your, your, your book is, it's, it's wildly detailed. I mean, to the point where I didn't know what was going on. Sometimes I'd be listening to it. Maybe <laughs> structural piece W one a with a cap and I'll just be nodding my head. Like, of course, yes, <laughs> yes. No one's around to quiz me. So I'm nobody knows that. I don't understand what's going on. Um, yeah. I loved, I loved cause, uh, Schlosser only went into it at the very beginning of his book. Um, kind of going down into the silo. I loved your detail on all of the safety measures about you know like the analog lock the digital lock but then there are even little things like putting the uh putting a what was it like an like epoxy filled with like copper wire um coating on the safe that made it so if you drilled in and destroy the drill no no that was that was i think you're mixing up i think i am the the safe was a safe it was just a heavy um secure uh file cabinet built uh built at the security level that NSA needed. The, um, I think maybe what you're talking is about is the cover to the butterfly lock I think so. on the missile. And that's that was to prevent it. If anybody started drilling through it, it would detonate the, um, it wouldn't, it would detonate it and cause it to not, not work anymore. Okay. It would detonate it and make it fail in the locked position instead of the open position. Okay. But yeah, it's, um, it's just, 
fascinating. Sometimes that backfired, sometimes it didn't. Uh, one one of the problems they had was with unintended ground uh, shorts to ground mm-hmm. caused some of the accidents. You know, you can only design so many things, and you can only design things around so many so human many errors, and then you just you know got to live with the consequences. Yeah, you know, it's at a certain point you kind of just you get there has to be a certain amount of suspension of uh, of of detail. You know, you can only cover for so many things before it's like, hey, man. I don't know. It's doing good enough. Like it's, you know. It's, right, right. No, that's 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 a good point. Yeah. It's like with computers. You can only you can only yeah. anticipate so many times, so many things that a person can screw up with Google. Yeah. And then you just have to realize if he holds all the keys down and hits his computer keyboard with a hammer, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. You can only idiot proof something so much, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's right. I mean, but. The other thing, there's there's two points I want to I want to touch on. Um, one, not really a point, just the detail again that you put into your book was the extra strength they put into the hydraulics, taking into account if there was a snowstorm or an ice storm. Oh yeah, or de- yeah, no, that's an interesting that's an interesting story. We had a lot of the original construction documents uh, from Ralph Parsons in the um, in our archive. And so I was going through looking at that, and I found the original tours. There were two things in the original tours that made no sense to me. One was that the blast doors were filled with concrete. In Minuteman, they were, but in Titan II, they weren't. And it made no sense to me that that would be true. So I took the blueprints. We had a complete set of blueprints of uh, as-built drawings for our missile um, silo facility and i took him to a steel jobber in tucson and i said i've done my calculations for how much the steel on this should weigh and uh, could you just check them and the guy said sure and did a few things on his computer and said approximately three tons and i said okay that's what i came up with there was no need for concrete and in miniman there was but the other thing that was interesting was i looked at the um at the silo closure door mechanics and they, the blueprint had been copied enough times that it looked like it said six feet of soil. The door could open with six feet of soil. Well, that made no sense oh, yeah. to me. I don't know if you know the angle of repose for, for dirt. You can only pile dirt so tall in, before it becomes a pyramid. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's the angle of repose for that particular soil. So it turns out only six inches was what could be on top of the door and it was still closed. So six inches got changed into six feet uh, by one of the dashes being removed. And people were talking about six feet of soil on top of the door. And it's like, no way in God's green earth is that true. Yeah. But yeah, they had to they had to um, make sure they could open the doors and after a heavy snowstorm. Um, the snow wasn't an issue, so much an issue in, in Davis Mountain, but Arkansas, believe it or not, they had ice storms and snow issues that they had to contend with. Yeah, I... I, I lived in Arkansas for four years. Granted, I was five years old. I don't really remember it, but <laughs> yeah. But but just uh, just a testimony to your book, though. I mean, going in and be like, you know, unless of course there was a snowstorm, in which case it was rated to you know, in the edges you had different. I just I was just fast. I was tickled by it that it was just so well. There was nothing. I wasn't left wanting for any more. Like, well, that's good. That is, well, that's why the Minuteman book is five hundred ninety-two pages. Well, I'll have to get that one too and go into it. Yeah, it's available on ebook and Kindle, like Kindle Fire. I think it's thirty bucks instead of forty. But is it on? Um, uh, is it on Audible? 
Uh, yeah, they did. In fact, that's a funny story. They they said that for the Audible book, they called me Donald K. Stump. I saw that. I saw that, and I was like, because when I first saw it, I was like, my brain, I had a brain fart, and I thought it said Donald Trump, and I was like, Donald Trump didn't write a book on ICP. No, <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, let's put it this way: if he did, I didn't want to read it. It wouldn't be good. Well, that also threw me for a loop, because when you emailed me back, it said David, and I was really confused for a second. So when you were, my first thought was like, when you were like sending me some questions, I was like, I hope I have the right author, because there's really no. I was like, if this guy didn't write a book on missiles, this podcast is not going to go well. I wasn't sure if I got the wrong email. Maybe you wrote a book on, like, vineyards, and I come in, and I'm like, so, hypergolic fluids. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? So, yeah. 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 But uh, another interesting thing was and – and I wanted to save this uh, so if you could please explain it because I re-listened to it several times, and I didn't understand uh-huh. it. It was one of the safety precautions – and it was if something was tampered with, something would autom- what it was automatic it would weld to it would weld to a piece of the missile, and I, I couldn't. Well, that, that's kind of um, it's it's hard to describe because there's a lot. It's not really clear. Okay. Um, basically, the butterfly valve lock would be shut in a way that they'd have to take the lock off of the missile to repair it. Okay. So. So it would drive a pin into the, the shaft, and that, that would stop the shaft from moving. So the propellants had valves, two valves, one for each propellant. Mm-hmm. And they were called butterfly valves because they rotated. They're a flap that rotated. Okay. And if, they, if the right code wasn't put into butterfly valve lock and someone tried to launch, it would drive a pin uh, in and stop the valve, the, the butterfly valve plate from rotating uh, so they then i would have to take the missile apart okay. so it's really bad for your career if you fussed around with the combination <laughs> yeah okay but that that's a brilliant security measure right it's not just like your iphone's been locked for 10 minutes it's no it physically right. it physically inhibits the missile from operating well back in the day that was the yeah they well, couldn't that's true. Do you're right they didn't have digital yeah so it's um well, they had digital, but it wasn't, it wasn't something it, you could hold in your hand. No, it was vacuum tubes, and yeah, right, it's not that far removed from John Von. The Regulus book, I interviewed an admiral for the Regulus book, and I had one of those calculator watches back in the day. I don't even know if they still make them. It was a Xernus engineering watch with the calculus, with the various cosine and sine and all that. And I was wearing it, and he said, boy, what I would have given to have that on board the submarine in 1960. Because <laughs> they had to use a mechanical calculator. Yeah. When you type it, it's a Monroe calculator. You type it in, you pull a handle, and it makes the calculation. It's accurate. Yeah. It's just incredibly slow. Yeah. So. It was um, – I was going to say, um, this is episode 399. On episode 11, right when I started, I had on uh, Ken Mason, who's a, a gentleman who um, designed rockets forever. He worked under Bob Truax, who oh yeah yeah, yeah. who helped uh, right. He was the one pushing, I think, for SLBMs to be on submarines. If I have that correct, uh, <laughs> Might he be was, wrong. He, no, I, I I don't know the particular history, the detail. Um, one of the things about the Miniman book that I brought to, to the forefront, which I haven't heard any whining about, which has surprised me, is one of the chapters says from Polaris came Miniman. Because the Polaris people, the guys who developed the propellants for Polaris, um, made Miniman possible, mm-hmm. and I actually located the one of the um, 
the key people for uh, putting me powdered metal into the propellants, which gave it the extra um, ISP, the specific impulse mm -hmm. to make uh, solid propellants rational for a long long range missile. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I found I came across a, a letter that was written to another author, a friend of mine, and it said to this guy's name, and he lived in uh, Virginia. So I tried with uh, been verified or something like that. I tried finding him and he wasn't in Virginia anymore. There was one with his initials and, and right age in, in uh, South in North Carolina. So because I'm so shy and retiring, I just picked up the phone and said, I called and said, if this is the guy's name who did this work, I'd be interested in talking to you. And he said, well, it is the right person. And who are you? <laughs> So it was pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I actually also, the best story of finding people, though, was the guy who was designed the uh, Miniman first minute, first two versions of the uh, reentry vehicle for Miniman. I called Avco, the company that made the reentry vehicles, was absorbed by Textron years ago. So I called Textron and said, I know this is a long shot, but I'm trying to find someone who was involved with Avco. And the guy goes, oh, I know just who it is. I'll get back to you when I finish my sales trip. So he didn't get back to me right away. So I called him again. And he goes, yeah, let me get him on the phone for you. And there was the guy, Phil Foti, who has designed the uh, Mark V and Mark XI reentry vehicles. So I went out and visited him. He said, buy me a couple of bourbons and I'll tell you whatever you want to know. <laughs> That's awesome. So I bought him a couple of bourbons and... <laughs> It was just an extraordinary, uh, I went out and interviewed him twice. Unfortunately, he passed away before the book was published. But with everybody I interview and, and anybody that's material shows up in the book, anyone, they get a, the copy of that particular part of the chapter and they have um, complete control over what's put in the book. If they say you've got it wrong, I try and get it right. If they say I prefer you not put it in, I don't put it in. That's beautiful. Because otherwise... I've broken a vow, to, I've broken a promise to him. And, yeah. and two, I'm not going to put something in that's anonymous because that's just it's, that's, poor journalism it's as just, far as I'm concerned. It's, it's, it's poor and it's lazy. Is when you, you yeah. know, a source familiar with, and no, it's a source familiar with could be my uncle who I told to say, hey, say this, right? It's, <laughs> well, that's, that's the one thing about Schlosser's book that, like I said earlier, mm -hmm. that bothered me. He had one, one place someone said something about it, maybe it was the warhead that was expelled from the Damascus side. Mm -hmm. We came within one one click of detonating. That's not true. Well, if, you, if, if that's true, and I don't know it to be true, if that's true, put your name, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. If it isn't true, then shut up. Yeah, I don't, don't think that's true. That's just me. No, I'm with you, because I'm pretty sure that was the case for the, um, the hydrogen bomb lost over North Carolina. I don't think that was the case, because you said it in your book, is, you know, the guys crawl over what they thought was the warhead and it turns out it wasn't and then next to it was the warhead but it was a yeah. testimony to just how well the warhead was designed because they were like hey well look, see that's that's interesting tommy i look at it the same way it didn't go off it was well designed and yeah. then everybody goes oh, it came within one or two switches of going off it didn't, but go, it off. didn't go off you know the difference between going off and going off is a thermonuclear hellscape in the middle of arkansas or a metal cylinder in the road yeah. There's no maybe. It's It didn't yeah. go off. <laughs> I just I just finished reading a book. If you haven't read the book, The Goldsboro Incident. That's the North Carolina one, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I read that. I, I actually interviewed one of the guys that was there and doesn't show up. He was top secret at the time. He doesn't show up in any of the photographs, but I have a photograph of him down in the pit with all the clay looking yeah. for the the warhead. And um, it was fascinating to see that the, the, the team came from wherever they came from and then disappeared wherever they disappeared to. And I actually interviewed one of the guys that was on that team. It was pretty cool. Jeez. He was involved with the design of the reentry vehicle wafers below the reentry vehicle for Minuteman uh, Room One uh, B. I would, I, I would, I wish the Air Force didn't ask you to not put out that because it's the little bit you do go into is so fascinating. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like like something I would write in fifth grade if I was trying to be fantastic. But you know, it's like it had you had to have tungsten, which has the highest melting point. But, you know, they were afraid of the tungsten vaporizing. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, the yeah. fear of tungsten yeah, it's, vaporizing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at the technology and how, how incredibly inventive and yeah. uh, curious these guys were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just And one of the arguments, one of the critics of my book, reviewing it before the publisher accepted it, which is actually interesting because they were going to publish it no matter what. Mm -hmm. But one of the guys said, there's a lot of stuff in this book that can be found elsewhere. He should be taken it out and he can shorten his book. And my answer to that was, like with Titan Two, I want you to open that book and I want you to have everything you need. If yes. you want a detail, fine. But if instead of saying reentry vehicles are covered in chapter six of some other book, as a scientist, I, I that really drove me nuts when... Yeah. You'd look at the back of a scientific paper and it would say, see, um, yeah, see this other person. They go to there and they see another person. Every time the original source, in fact, one of my scientific papers had a source from the 1800s in it because that's the guy who invented this thing called Dragondorf reagent. Instead of citing somebody's paper from 1968 or 70, I went back and actually found it. It was, it was cosmic to find. It was in a, one of the uh, British publications. That's awesome. But and the guy's name was Dragondorf. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's but that's why I love your book is because there's no you know see you know you know Smith at all for the 1912 book on no yours yeah. is you know short of giving me the ability to construct my own uh, uh, missile it is from open to close you don't like I knew some things about it. Because I just, again, it's just, I have a lot of passing interests. One thing I'd always kind of been interesting was in ICBMs. But the point is, is if you don't know anything about ICBMs, you can start it and finish it. And you'll know just about everything you probably like legally can know about the Titan. Thank you. That was the intent of the book. Well, um, the one thing book. I want to do, Tommy, after sure. this, I'll send you an article uh, folder with, or a series of articles I've written about the test ranges. Sure. Um, for the, the birth of the test ranges, because I also took far too much time and money writing that down. But a lot of this is history that's disappearing. Yeah. Because companies aren't saving it anymore or people are losing interest. One guy told me he thought I should, my next book should be about Peacekeeper. And a very good friend who's in the know about this says the same kind of data you got from Miniman is no longer in existence for Peacekeeper because they shredded it. It's and it's like they what they, they shredded it. He was there when it happened. They just took his volumes oh. and shredded it because the system was no longer deployed. Oh. It was like, well, my wife's happy because that means I won't be writing that book. Your wife had it commissioned. 
Your wife contacted you <laughs> to shred it now. That's the, the library of Alexandria, right? That's like the uh, yeah. that's like the F one yeah. engines on the Saturn. They don't they not yeah. know how to build the F ones anymore? That's just that's criminal to me. It's disgusting. That's just just criminal. It's disgusting. But it's 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 the um, you know it's uh, if you've never been to have been to the Huntsville Space Museum. No, sir, I haven't. They have a, a, a Saturn on the side inside. It's an enormous. It's just it's just cosmic to go look at. Yeah. Just absolutely cosmic. What? Yeah, it's it's three. Isn't I think three hundred and sixty three feet. Is that it? Something that yeah, oh, pretty soon. I think it was. It's, uh, and and they never blew one up. Yeah, it's absurd. And it got hit by lightning. Yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, it's kind of like that quote about the Apollo program. If you're sitting on the top of that thing and you're not nervous, then you don't fully grasp the situation. <laughs> well, there's a guy, a, a um, comedian. I can't can't remember his name now. Bill, maybe it's Bill Dana. He did a he did a imitation uh, Spanish accent, Hispanic accent. And he talked about being on, of course he was nervous. He was on top of 100,000 parts provided by the lowest bidder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that before. Think about, yeah. Think about that. Yeah. It's but, what was going through your mind. Well, the fact that this was won by the lowest bidder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'd, I'd go on top of one of those things in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Light that thing. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. It's, yeah, I figure you wouldn't know if it went wrong, right? It would just be, be lights out. Well, I think I think the Challenger people had it, unfortunately, in the, in yeah. the Columbia. They unfortunately knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. But it's, that's, what, yeah. what can I say? There's not much more you can say about that. Yeah. Um, so last last two things, and then, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up and uh, get five okay. minutes left. And I, I, would, I, I would love to have you back on. I would love to. We'll email. I'd be this. happy to do so. Let's. Um, we can do the Minuteman, yes, and if you minute. want to talk about Regulus, we can to. talk about Regulus. I would be sure. tickled. Um, but real quick, the the last two things was uh, another one of the security features. I love how they kind of had that simple, you know, it's this. They're all they're going into these in um, complex uh, like counter espionage. They have these like fail safe systems, metallurgy, and then one of them was, well, what about if you just shot it with a three fifty seven? And they're like, that's a good point. What if you shot it with a three fifty seven? And the guy that takes that testing box, so for everyone listening, there's this guy that takes a little mock-up box, and he's going to one of the manufacturers, but he's taking it on a plane. He gets to the airport, and it says, like, you know, whatever, it had, like, detonation button on the top of this metal box. And the security was like, sir, what is that? And he was like, oh, no. <laughs> so he had to contact the lab or whatever it was, and they had to they had to vouch for him that he wasn't a terrorist. That instead he was just bringing that box. I thought that was hilarious. I was back in the day before there was such yeah, security TSA. issues. But yeah, yeah, you'd be amazed. I think we'd all be amazed. I had a friend that brought home a suitcase full of firecrackers from Florida <laughs> on an air, and they didn't even look in their luggage. I vaguely Talk remember. About yeah. Stupid. But, I, I vaguely know. remember going to the airport in the 90s and we when my dad would be going away on business and we would go we'd go wait at the gate with him i vaguely remember and now the idea of just walking into the gate is just absurd Um, yeah yeah um and then so the last thing i want to say and i guess we'll kind of leave on this note is i know your wife probably wouldn't be happy but i cannot find a comprehensive book on reagan's sdi the Strategic Defense Initiative. I found a lot of great documentaries, a lot of great kind of papers. 
no one has done a book like you did with Titan. Man, if there's anyone that could tackle a Star Wars book, it would be you. And it would be amazing. But I don't want to put that burden on you. But, man. Well, now you've done it. I'm going to do a quick search and see what I can come up oh, with. Oh, I will. I will. I don't even have any money. I will find the money and I will, I will help fund this this endeavor. Because there's. It costs me, around numbers, it costs about 45 grand to write the Minuteman book. I will, I will start a GoFundMe. I can't guarantee we'll get more than $10, but <laughs> I will. I will try. Don't start it. Don't start it, Tommy, until I tell you I mentioned I'm going to take on the project. Okay, okay, I'll I'll hold off on it. But it's I'll take a look. It is. It shouldn't be classified anymore. Yeah, it's the, you wouldn't think the stuff that well because I've watched documentaries with Casper Weinberger and Lieutenant General James Abramson, who's in charge of SDI, who's right. still, who's still alive and is on a defense contractor's uh, board of directors. And I've been emailing the company he used to work for. I've been emailing him for the last year, and I can't get a response from him. I would love to talk yeah. to them, though. But just what they do go into, even in the 80s, that was declassified in the 80s, whatever's declassified now, I don't even know. But the technology then, I mean, it's the same thing when you're listening to Titan 2, and you're just kind of like, what is going on? The yeah. stuff they're talking about, the directed energy, the particle beams, the, the, the mirrors changing in space, the button, the whole thing is just, I mean, it does sound like Star Wars, but there's not a well, single good book on it. There is, if you want to read about the Soviet version, there's a journal called Quest, a journal of the history of spaceflight. Okay. And um, that has a whole series of articles on the uh, the Russian version. And they got really close to putting it up and trying to test it, but then didn't because yeah. we stopped ours. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you sometimes wonder how much of it was actually built and, and utilized because it was disinformation. Exactly. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it's a brilliant disinformation Absolutely. campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's it's a brilliant disinformation camp. We're spending $5 trillion on a, on a system of orbital lasers. Like, man, you know, do you really want to bluff and say it's not there? Do you want to fire your yeah. missiles? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And it might, might have been. It's Yeah, I believe the Soviets wanted to put up a carbon dioxide-fueled laser. That's the only yeah. thing I ever know about theirs, and I don't think it worked, or I, they didn't put it up. But, yeah, there's no good – there's no – I mean – there's missile defense stuff, sure, you know, hit a bullet with a bullet, sprint ABM, all that stuff, whatever. The directed energy and the particle beams in space in the 80s, I mean, there's not a good book on it. And, it, you know, the reason might be because there's no information because they never did it. It could very well be that. Could be. Could be. I don't know. I'll have to take a quick look. Yes, sir. But I won't tell my wife. Yes, yeah, please don't. And if you do, don't tell her I told you. I don't need any. <laughs> okay, tell me. Well, well it's a pleasure being on, and I appreciate your skills in leading the conversation. And, uh, and I look forward to doing this again. Yes, sir. David Stump, author of Titan 2, A History of a Cold War Missile Program. On Audible, I will put it in the description, stick it in the comment. It's fantastic for anyone that has any passing interest. And as someone that has who failed calculus three times, you don't need to understand this stuff it's a great book through and through it's fantastic it's terrifying and it's beautiful i thoroughly enjoyed it you're a cool dude i would love to have you on i'll email you after this and we'll set up we'll do regulus and minuteman and then i'll nudge you along for strategic defense initiative okay but, sounds good thank you sir sounds god good. bless you have a wonderful evening you too bye-bye right. thank you sir goodbye